Oh dear. Hey guys, and welcome to the Coffee and Coding Podcast, the show where we discuss everything there is to know about app development. I'm your host, Rob J, and in this episode, I speak with the CEO of Crypto Stopper, Greg Edwards. We talk about ransomware, getting into the hacker's mindset, how to protect yourself from attacks, how to write secure code, why SMS two-factor authentication is not secure, the future of ransomware on mobile, and much, much more. Now on to the show. So before we get into today's episode, just a, a couple of things. So firstly, I'd like to shout out to at DB Tech Projects on Twitter, who made some coffee donations this week. Your support for the show is much appreciated. So thank you very much. And if you're listening and you like the show and you want to support it, then you're also very welcome to do so by going to coffeeencodedpod.com slash donate. And if you like the show and you want to support it, but you don't want to part with your hard-earned money, which is totally understandable, and I will not judge you whatsoever for that, then you can still do so by leaving the show a rating and review for free. If you're on an iOS device, you can literally just open the Apple Podcast app, hit subscribe on the show. If you're not already subscribed, please subscribe, and then just leave a rating and write a review preferably a positive rating and a review, but I'll take whatever I can get. And if you're on Android, then you can leave a review in your podcasting app of choice if it supports it. Weirdly, not that many do. So, you know, it's pretty strange considering it's a listener driven experience. But anyways, if it doesn't support it, then you can go to coffeeandcodingpod.com forward slash podchaser and you can leave a review on there. Also, as a heads up, I'm going to start shouting out anyone who leaves a review as well as people who make coffee donations. So, you know, if that incentivizes you to make a review, then awesome. Moving on from that, I mentioned last week at the start of the episode that I'll be doing a live Q&A for you to ask me anything you like. I'm expecting a lot of questions about getting hired or going freelance or, you know, learning to code, all that kind of stuff. But you're welcome to ask me absolutely anything you like. That doesn't mean that I'm going to answer just, you know, for those of you who've got some crazy questions in mind, but you're welcome to ask. And I now have a date for that, which is going to be Friday, the 14th of May at 4 p.m. GMT. So convert that to whatever time zone you happen to be in. I tried to line up the, as many time zones as at appropriate times as possible. So I feel like 4 p.m. hits the mark. But if you can't make it, then maybe we'll try and record it or something so you guys can watch it later. But no promises there's going to be a recording. So if you can make it live, then I suggest you do so. And if you want to attend that, then you can do so by signing up at coffeeencodingpod.com slash live QA. Or if you're on the Coffee Encoding Slack, you can do so by joining the live QA Slack channel. And if you're not already on the Slack, you can join that by going to coffeeandcodingpod.com slash slack. Thirdly, so recently I've had quite a few people ask me about career advice, I would say. So I've had some people ask me, you know, how do they go from being permanent, which they are now, to freelance? How do they make their CV stand out? How do they make their LinkedIn stand out? All these kind of questions. So for any of you out there who want me to review your CV or give you some advice on transitioning into a freelance role or anything else kind of career developer related or really anything that you think I could help you with or you want to chat to me about, then you now have the opportunity to do so because you guys can book a one-on-one session with me for free at coffeeandconingpod.com dot com slash one on one. So you just go on there, it will redirect you to Calendarly, Calendly, not entirely sure how you say it, but it will redirect you so you can book a slot in my calendar and then we can chat about whatever you want and I'll help you out as best as I can. Like I said, that's for free. There's limited slots, so it's going to be on a first come, first serve basis. But obviously, you know, if you don't manage to get a slot, you can still email me or hit me up on LinkedIn, all that good stuff. So I think that's everything from me. Friday, May 14th at 4pm GMT 2021. Get your questions ready. 
make sure you're in the Slack if you're not already on it or make sure that you sign up at coffeeencodingpod.com slash live QA if you want to ask me a question or if you want to hear other people ask me a question and hear me answer. And with all of that said and done, now onto the show. This is super weird, right? So there's two of me because yep, yep. one of them is in Firefox and that's recording and I'm in Chrome. Because I had issues the other day where it didn't record the whole thing, and they said it was a Firefox update, but I'm not logged in on Chrome, so I can't record. <laughs> so this is how we're going to do it. It's a good job that I'm not releasing video, because this would be weird. <laughs> yeah, but at least we can see each other and interact, so that's good. Uh, 100%, 100%. So just to start off, so for people that don't know you and don't know your background and anything about Crypto Stopper, can you give us just like a, a brief introduction of who you are, and more interestingly, kind of what was your journey to just before you started Crypto Stopper. And, and primarily I'm interested in that because I know cybersecurity for sure, like when I was back in school, um, and I'm sure when you were doing it too, was not a thing. To get into cybersecurity, you had to do something wrong to be able to get into it. You couldn't, <laughs> like you couldn't go into a course, right? So kind of what was your journey and what made you want to get into that? So I'm Greg Edwards, the founder and, uh, CEO of Crypto Stopper. That's an anti ransomware tool. And the way that I actually got into cybersecurity and started CryptoStopper was because the last company that I owned was an offsite backup and disaster recovery company. And starting in 2012, which coincides exactly when uh, cryptocurrency became available for cyber attackers to be able to leverage and use, we started seeing ransomware attacks happening to our offsite backup clients. And we were doing full-on recoveries because of ransomware. And actually between 2012 and 2015, 20% of our offsite backup clients required a full-on recovery because of ransomware. That is a lot, yeah. Yeah, so we're actually coming up on the 10-year anniversary of the very first ransomware, like what I would consider modern ransomware that leverages cryptocurrency, which is crazy to think about. And so, yeah, so my journey into cybersecurity really started, you know, way I started my first network consulting business in 1998 and took actually the I love you bug was the very first virus that I, that I dealt with. Uh, and so that's really was my first introduction to the need for cybersecurity. And then it was a journey from there. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't something where you could take classes on cybersecurity. <laughs> like you had to get arrested by the FBI first and then you could get into <laughs> cybersecurity back then. So yeah, so my journey has been, I, I don't know if you would consider that traditional, but very much technology that morphed into from an absolute need into cybersecurity. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, I would say from a cybersecurity standpoint, unless you were starting from today, that's probably pretty traditional, right? You kind of teach yourself and 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 break things and learn as you go. Right. Oh, yeah, it's like one of two routes, right? Either that way that takes 20 years yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or get arrested by the FBI. Yeah, 100%, 100%. <laughs> So, so Crypto Stopper, like you said, is a, is a ransomware company. Um, and I definitely want to dig into that, but I have one question and mostly because being an app developer, I get a lot of questions about, you know, should I go freelance? How do I go freelance? All this kind of stuff. And you mentioned that you were, you were a consultant back in the day and now you have your own company. And before that you had your own, it was like a backup and restore company, right? So my question is probably going back to the backup and restore company. What kind of made you, why did you decide to do that and not decide I'm going to work for IBM and I'm going to manage their backups? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, that was actually, a, depending on how you look at it, either a very easy journey or a hard journey because 
there was no way that, I mean, I, I knew probably from the age of 12 that I would own my own company. I, I worked in a larger software company and did, you know, did well, did very well in that as my very first job, but I knew all along that I would be starting my own, being, being on my own and being an entrepreneur and started that first actual company when I was 24. So yeah, so for me, you know, I took the jump early on, which was much easier before, you know, before mortgages and before. Yeah, 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 uh, of course. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When you have less things to lose, right? Right. Yeah. But yeah, had nothing to lose, which I, you know, I would encourage anyone to make that jump. And it, there's, you know, there's going to be, you're going to make mistakes. You got to learn from mistakes and you got to be resilient and keep pushing through. Yeah, I think that's also another thing where there's not really a playbook. Like you could go to business school or something like that, but real world, you know, something happens that nobody can tell you how to deal with it because it's an individual thing, right? So you just just have to just try it and take it as it comes and see how it goes. Yep, yep. And I certainly wasn't without challenge in that. I actually have, have a son that I had when I was 19. So I dropped out of college to take care of him and... And really change that helped to change my direct direction and absolutely thankful for that and you know love that that's how my journey went all right so so digging into crypto stopper for a bit right so i guess for our listeners i imagine most people know what ransomware is but before we dig into what crypto stopper does properly can you just tell us like very basic what is ransomware and and i guess why do we care for sure. So ransomware is a whole category of basically holding holding files or intellectual property uh, in one way or another to extract money. So that's all it is in the in the traditional sense. Um, it uses encryption to encrypt files on a local network or on a local PC or Mac, uh, and then demand a dollar amount typically in Bitcoin, uh, to get the password. So when you think of like a WinZip or 7-Zip or applications that, you know, that we might use to zip and compress files, well, you can add a password to those. And so, so sorry to cut you off, but is it, nope. is it the same thing as simple as like, if I was going to write ransomware, I could just WinZip it with a password or are we talking? Cause I, I would imagine by now you could get past a WinZip password, right? Or is that not the case? Well, that's not the case. Um, okay. I don't know what encryption specifically WinZip uses. I, I don't either. I just remember using it back in the day and I feel like by now, surely that's been cracked, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm assuming that they've upgraded their technology. Sure, sure, sure. sure yeah. Um, to be able to use strong encryption. So basically, just that strong encryption, if you have weak encryption, that's easily breakable. So 128-bit encryption, you can brute force depending on the, you know, so, but if you get into the modern encryption, there's there's essentially no way. I mean, you brute force it, and even with the fastest computers can take thousands of years to find that encryption key. So I guess that question then leads to where does crypto stopper coming? Because so I, I guess there's a couple of things, right? So one, is there a big market or or is there big players in the ransomware prevention market would be the first one. And then secondly, kind of what made you go that direction as opposed to, you know, an antivirus company or, you know, just cybersecurity protection in general at, at a corporate level? For sure. So actually, that's the direction that I went to start with was the cybersecurity uh, and putting together a full managed services MSSP to provide all of the tools and the services around it. Well, we built this early on. We built 
crypto stopper as a, actually it was a PowerShell script early on just to detect because antivirus was not stopping ransomware. And it really has always been the case that antivirus has never stopped a hundred percent of malware. Right. I mean, something's always getting through. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It, and so that's where what what happened with ransomware is that those few that get through are devastating. And so so we built this tool kind of un. I mean, it wasn't unknowingly. We knew we needed to be able to stop ransomware and added that to our stack of cybersecurity, overall cybersecurity protections. And so, you know, so I don't tell people crypto stopper is not the silver bullet that's going to save you from all cyber attacks, right? It's crypto stopper is that last line of defense to specifically stop ransomware when it gets past all your other defenses. Gotcha. So I guess another question leading off from that is, so so I was listening to a cybersecurity book last week, actually. I forget which one it was, but it was basically just walking through, you know, some of the biggest attacks in the last 10 years or something was super interesting. And it seems like people is the biggest issue when it comes to security. And and I guess I kind of just wanted to get your thoughts on that in terms of, because like you said, right, you're, you're the last line of defense. So the ransomware is already on the machine and you guys are the ones that are like, hey, something's been encrypted. It's not supposed to be. Let's stop this and figure out what it is. But prior to that point, in terms of in terms of stopping that point, would you would you agree that people is still the issue? And if so, I guess the question is kind of how do we get around that? Because to me, right, if I get an email that's got an attachment on it from somebody I don't know, I'm not going to open the attachment. But that's me being a, a little bit savvy because, you know, I, I work in software development, so I understand most people don't do that. So I, I guess kind of, I guess we should leave a question there and I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you run with the answer. <laughs> yeah. So, so my answer to the, are, are people the problem is yes and no. So yes, it, it generally takes someone to click on something or, you know, someone to make a mistake. But in the exact scenario you gave where you said you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't ever open a malicious file, right? But imagine the scenario where, you're working with a company, you're sending files back and forth, they send you a file that says, hey, you know, here's the latest specs. Sure. Please. I would open that. You would open that, right? Yeah. So even you and I can be tricked by attackers. So that then makes it not a people problem. That makes it a systems problem. I gotcha. I gotcha. I didn't think of it like that. That's so true. I feel like that's kind of like where you get them scam calls where, you know, for the most part, you know, it's a scam call. But if I was just talking to my bank and then I got a phone call saying, hey, it's your bank, I would be like, oh, they're calling me back. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't click that. Yeah. Okay. I didn't, I didn't think of it like that. And, and that's the vector that's changed that it's still the same the same vector of getting in and still email is still more than 50% of the root cause of ransomware, but they've become so much more sophisticated in that they will hack the email system of someone and then start interacting. And they'll, I mean, they'll read the emails, they'll take the language of the person that they've hacked and they're using that as a beachhead to get into other systems. Yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. I mean, if it wasn't so nefarious, it would be very, like, it is very impressive, <laughs> but the nefarious part puts a bit of a bad stain on it, I guess. Yeah. So, well, you probably haven't seen the news yet. Which um, news is this? So, there's a right now an ongoing 
ransom of Apple oh, really? intellectual property for $50 million. Oh, okay. Yeah, I did not know that news. Just that it was just announced overnight. Oh, that's crazy. Although I, w- I would say for Apple, that's cheap. Well, it's cheap, but... It's $50 million. <laughs> yeah, 100%. 100%, yeah. I suppose it goes to show that anybody could be hit, right? Because these are companies that you wouldn't think. Right. And the thing that I tell people, because there, there is that, but there's also, you can protect yourself. I mean, I just, I talked to um, a manufacturing company, small manufacturing company, 60 employees that got hit by ransomware just last week. And they're like, why, you know, why would they hit? us why are we like it's obvious that apple's a target right but why is a tiny manufacturing company in the united states in the midwest a target and it's because their business is important to them and they have money so it runs the spectrum and right now there's so many more attackers than there are the cybersecurity professionals to be able to protect everyone all right. So, so I guess from a corporate perspective, right? You know, you can, you can hire professionals. I know they do pen testing. You have crypto stopper. You have all the different layers in front of that. And, and I would imagine there's some sort of kind of employee training, like don't put, don't find a USB in the parking lot and then go and stick it into a machine, right? <laughs> right. But from a personal perspective, I would imagine, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not going to be attacked by ransomware in the sense that I assume it's not random, right? Like they target people specifically or would would that is my assumption wrong yeah your assumption's wrong (laughs) sorry okay okay okay. (laughs) so there there are the very targeted attacks but then there are also broad shotgun attacks where they'll just buy a list from any number of hacked sites that you may have been on and then you get it you know then you get an email and those are those are going to be much less sophisticated and that's where user training really can help is in those broad-based kind of attacks. So that's me stands corrected. So I could I definitely should not click on dodgy links in my emails. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> so I guess to the user training part, right? What would you say is the most important thing? Or maybe is there something that people don't think of? So like what you said before, I wouldn't think that if I was working for a company and we're emailing back and forth and, you know, two minutes later, I get another email. It's got the same title. It's got, a, it says, here's a new spec. It's never going to cross my mind. I need to ring somebody or I need to send a message on Slack to somebody and say, hey, did you send this? So what would you say is like, um, what's the least obvious way that people can protect themselves other than just, you know, if you get an email that says click here, just don't do it. Well, so it is, I mean, the user training, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm not promoting user training because user training is absolutely necessary. So companies and, and individuals need to, they need to consciously think about their cybersecurity and their cybersecurity stack. And what, you know, what are you doing from multiple levels? And we call that defense in depth. So, okay, one user clicks on an email that they shouldn't have. Well, can that take down the entire system or for, you know, for an individual or for a freelancer, do you have good backups of everything? I mean, that's really for an individual or for a freelancer, making sure that you've got good passwords, that you've got backups that are disconnected from all of your systems. Um, so those are, you know, just people educating themselves on what are the, the minimum cybersecurity standards that they should be following. 
Okay, that makes sense. So then I have I have a question which you can answer or you can not answer because you might not want to. <laughs> but in terms of like a personal tech stack, right? Do you use a Mac or Windows or Linux or like what what do you use? Because for example, I use Linux because well, I like it better and it, and you know, I like the open source nature of it. And to my layman brain, it's less of a target than Windows for sure, and I would imagine it's even less of a target for Mac for sure now. But like, what what tech stack do you use? I'm mostly interested. Like, if you say Windows, I'd be super interested. Like, why are you using Windows? Because you obviously know more than me. So, yep, yep. So, actually, use Windows and Mac. Okay. Um, and just never made the transition to Linux. You know, it just being primarily in the business day to day kind of business world, like. It, it's been so dominated by Windows. And so that's, that's where my, you know, trajectory has led me. Um, but I do use Windows and Mac and Windows are by far so much less secure. So you're, you're absolutely right there. And just by the nature of what, you know, there's less from a Linux standpoint. It's not that it's necessarily more secure. It's just less common. And so there's not as big of an attack surface out there for the cyber attacker. So yeah, that's, that, that's what I'm banking on because the source code is right there. So I'm sure if people wanted to attack it, it wouldn't take, the, take them long to find ways in. Exactly. And they have, but through that obscurity, and I'm not a fan of security through obscurity, but there is some benefit to it. Um, so yeah, hopefully that answered your question that I'm more, more of a, much more of a PC and Windows guy, but also a Mac guy. All right. So I, I want to transition a little bit to talking about from a mobile's perspective. But before we do that, I just have an interest or well, interesting to me is how much hands on as CEO of Crypto Stopper and you've been doing this. How much hands on are you in terms of like code and scripting? And uh, like, I, d- I don't want to talk out of time because I don't know what hacking looks like, but in terms of the actual cybersecurity part, how, how much hands on are you still with that? Yeah. Yeah, so unfortunately, I would say because I'm a geek at heart, <laughs> it's it's becoming less and less. But I did just hire a president to run day to day operations uh, and have you know sales management team that are handling more. So so that's the interesting thing about being an entrepreneur is you've got to be able to make that transition up the stack. And so I I barely do any like hands on anymore, much more from a high level kind of product direction and vision. But yeah, I'm not doing any real hands on anymore. So, you know. Yeah, that's fine. That's kind of what I expected. Like everyone that I've talked to get, that gets into a senior position, it's like the higher you get, the less code or whatever it is that you do, you get to do. Yeah. And I do, I still will sit on dev meetings and our, our weekly sprint meetings just because I want to stay connected. And, and then just like this, this manufacturing company that was hit by ransomware, like I talk to them directly because it's, I want to stay connected and it's that, that geek in me that, you know, keeps that connection. I get it. Totally. Totally. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. That's interesting. I just wanted to know they just popped into my head now. I was like, Oh, I wonder how much. So. That's cool. Um, so transition to mobile a little bit. If you, if you don't want to answer, if you don't want to speak out of turn, you can just not answer. It's not a problem. for sure. Yeah. And this is not necessarily going to be my expertise, but I'll. That's totally fine. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I think, I think from 
my knowledge, most of what I'm going to ask is kind of theoretical. So, you know, you might, it's mostly opinion, <laughs> opinionated. Yeah. I've got all kinds of opinions and okay, theories. Okay, awesome, so. awesome. That's it. Yeah, go, go for the opinions. That's it. So I, I was mostly interested about, or a few things that I'm interested about. So one, I, I heard in one of your interviews, you were talking about kind of, I, I forget the exact wording that you used, but it was like thinking like a hacker, right? Mm, so from a sure. developer's perspective, how can people, or, or like, what's the best way without me, like, so me, for example, I don't know hacking anything, right? I used to get locked out of my old Windows XP PC and I knew how to like get the terminal up and I could change it and get into it. That was, that's like the extent of my hacking experience. So for me as a developer, how could I code in a way where I can get into that mindset of, you know, what I've written is great, but two years down the line, this could be a problem. I guess, what would be your advice or your insight or whatever opinion you have on that idea? Yeah. So really think about where are the potential entry points into the software. And this doesn't matter if it's Android or Windows or whatever, but what are those potential entry points in? And not only in your own code, but are you using a platform or an open source piece of code that may also have that entry point? And then because we everything has to have an entry point, right? I mean, it's got to connect to other systems. So how are those connection points protected? And we've also, I mean, you've also got to be able to have the automated connections too and third parties. So be thinking in those terms of what are those connection points? How is that secured? And then, and then also making sure that there's an update process and that the other platforms or open source that's being connected to it, that that's also being updated because it's not only your code, it's everyone else's code that's in the ecosystem that yeah, you built. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me, yeah. Yeah, and again, thinking like a hacker, like, I mean, you're a hacker. <laughs> you, you cra- you've cracked into Windows before. You, <laughs> I mean, that's where it starts. Yeah, I feel like if, if I gave that, if I gave a talk about how I did that uh, hacker convention, I would get booed off the stage. So I feel like that, <laughs> that probably doesn't count, but I'll take it. <laughs> oh, brilliant. So, so I guess just, just to touch on that entry point. So, you know, from a, from a mobile perspective, I always think, you know, my primary concern with being, you know, quote unquote hacked is mostly I have an app that has in-app subscriptions and someone will find a way to like decompile it, figure out how to get hold of those in-app subscriptions without paying for it. That happens a lot. And it's really like, it's not worth combating because the amount of people that are going to download a cracked version of your app versus the amount of people that are just going to get it from the Play Store, it's not worth spending the time trying to prevent someone from doing that. Because like to your point earlier, like people are always, there's always going to be ways in. So for an app perspective, you have to make the app good enough that people don't want to go and do that. They just want the next update because it does what they want. But I guess, I guess my question on that is in terms of entry points, so like on iOS or Android, and I would assume iOS is much more secure than Android just because of its kind of closed ecosystem nature. Are we talking entry points in terms of, you know, I connect to an API in my app to do something and so that is an attack vector or are we talking about something else like physical or, or what would your what would your thoughts be on that? So that API connection absolutely is an attack vector. Yep. And um, to talk about the the decompiling. So so one thing that I would and I and again, we're outside of my realm of expertise sure, here, sure, sure. but yeah. I would assume this probably exists. So we um, I said earlier, I don't believe in or don't like security through obscurity, but you can obfuscate 
your code so that it's much more difficult to decompile. And I would assume you can do that in Android. So, you know, so that's a good step. Not even, th- not, so not just thinking about those people that are going to steal it, but from the people that are going to decompile it and figure out where those entry points are. Cause that's exactly what they're going to do. And I guarantee you are doing it. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And to your point, yeah, you can definitely in Android, I think iOS to um, obfuscate the code. When I was actually like actively trying to prevent it, it was I had to write the the bits of the code that did things that people were cracking. I had to basically use reflection to write that code. So it made the dig like when it's when it's obfuscated, it made it even more harder. I mean, it didn't stop anyone from doing it. It just meant rather than it happening tomorrow, it happened a week later. So that's why I stopped doing it. I was just like, it takes me so much effort. Now I can't read my own code and somebody else has still done the job. So, but yeah, obfuscation is definitely a way forward. So the other question that I had, I guess, is... From um, a a kind of future perspective, I heard you mention on another podcast that, you know, when some, I think somebody asked you a similar question and you mentioned this attack that somebody tries to do on Tesla where they, they tried to pay somebody a million dollars to go to Tesla and like an employee of Tesla and I assume put in a USB or something, right? So going forward, what do you think, what you think the future of ransomware is going to be? And then I also kind of have an a question, which is, do you think that mobile devices in the future will become attack, an attack vector if they haven't already. So, yeah, so the mobile devices as an attack vector is already happening for sure. And especially, so what I recommend is segregation within the network so that people that are bringing their mobile devices into an office, they want, you know, they want to get internet, right? But make that a separate network, don't connect that to your corporate environment. Absolutely. Um, so that's number one. And then the future of, future of ransomware. I mean, these guys are just now perfecting their craft. So when you think about the evolution of any industry, it generally takes about 10 years now. And that's, I mean, that time frame is shortening and shortening as we evolve as humans. But I mean, these attackers are making so much money. I mean, this $50 million attack on Apple, and I mean, it's just nonstop. So the attacks are not going to stop. It's going to increase in, in frequency and severity. And so as individuals and as corporations, we absolutely have to take this seriously and educate ourselves and get the right personnel and the right tech stacks in place. And, you know, from a corporate standpoint, I don't, don't ever tell CEOs that I expect them to become cybersecurity experts, but figure out and know what are the critical reports that you should be seeing. I mean, you should be getting several just one page executive summary reports on a monthly basis that you're taking into your board meetings. And then, you know, bring that down to the freelancer that's just working on their own understand where your backups are. Make sure you have two-factor authentication in place. Make yourself a damn hard target. Yeah, that sounds like great advice. Yeah, two-factor authentication is key. And I, and I, when I was reading this book last week, they also mentioned, which I knew already, I don't really understand how this works, but SMS authentication is not secure yeah, compared yeah. to, I have no idea that works, but that kind of blew my mind a little bit. So Yeah, i give you a 30 seconds on that. Yeah, please. Um, so the reason that SMS to 2FA is not secure is because basically any phone number can be replicated and mimed or mirrored. Um, So I could take your phone number and start using it 
tomorrow. Right. <laughs> if I wanted to, right? And then then all you need is the the password and then if I get the code, I'm in. Gotcha. Yeah, see, you've just blown my mind now because I've seen <laughs> things like that happen in movies. This, this is real life. Well, it happens all the time. I mean, it's, and that's where, and, and I, I mean, some things, I mean, it's better than not having it. I would definitely sure. yeah, yeah. say that. Um, and there's things where I still, because the, the app only has SMS text, that I'll still use it. But I mean, I use a password manager. So, so still having good passwords is, is critical. So I use a password manager. I use randomly generated passwords that I try to use 24 character as a minimum, but a lot of times you can't. So, you know, having good passwords, having two factor authentication, I mean, that has to be like baseline of just done and where you start. So just on a point that you mentioned there, you mentioned a password manager. So do you do you find that to be a good way to store passwords or not? Because I know like, for example, you're using 24 character randomly generated passwords, right? But to me, it's like, so I have a password manager, which is great. But then if my password manager gets hacked, they have all my passwords. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So that's absolutely a concern. But so the, the and I'll promote these guys, um, the password manager that I use is called one password. And, and so now I'm probably going to get hacked because I said that. It's <laughs> fine. <laughs> right, we'll just be, we could just beep it out. <laughs> um, but to be able to get into that vault. So the vault is encrypted and, you know, they, they could have a vulnerability in their, vaulting system that would be nothing that I would do. So there there is a concern there, but it's so still so much better than reusing the same password over and over. And so so yeah, so it's an encrypted vault. It takes my secure password plus a randomly generated secret key plus two-factor authentication to get into it. And so as long as they don't have some sort of vulnerability that would allow an attacker to bypass all of that and get in, then it's, it, you know, it's, and again, I mean, you've got to do, I mean, I feel like I don't, I don't want to get political and talk about the pandemic in any way, but, you know, getting the vaccine to me is much more important than not. You know, so it's like, is the is the cure better than the <laughs> the virus? I to- yeah, no, I totally get what you're saying. Like having all of those things is way safer than having password as your password for everything. <laughs> right, right. Because right. yeah, yeah, no, I no, I totally get it. That totally makes sense to me. Um, and I just wanted to touch on one thing that you said earlier. So you you talked about you know if if you're working or if you're a startup or a corporation or whatever, and you want employees to be able to get on the internet have a separate network for that internet connection so you can but so w- when you said that are you talking about for example an employee's phone could be in some way compromised without them knowing or are you talking about a nefarious attack like a freelancer comes in with something on their phone they're now on the network and they can do stuff so both so so the average time to detection of a breach is nine months oh wow so when you think in context in that context of how you know so they're they're very much trying to get on the system without anyone knowing um, that differs for ransomware where the attack happens and usually happens might be scheduled you know a few weeks out just to make it worse. But yeah, I mean that the whole point of them getting in and if the phone was used as the attack vector, that person using the phone may never ever know that they were the attack vector. 
Yeah. I guess I was always just under the impression from, I suppose it not making the headlines a lot that, you know, phones are, I, I could do stuff to my phone to make it do things that someone wouldn't want. But I was always under the impression that if I get an email on my phone and I click that link, it's probably going to do nothing because it's targeted at a Windows PC. But I imagine that is not the case. Well, it is, it again, is and isn't uh, most likely going to be targeting a Windows machine, but there's no... There's no reason that it has to be. Yeah, 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 I gotcha. So, so it is possible that, like, they're learning their craft now, right? So it is possible that in five years' time, it's not uncommon that, you know, you have an iPhone or an Android phone, and one day you could pick it up and it says, you know, you owe us 2,000 Bitcoin, otherwise your data's gone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, to me, that's the scariest situation as an individual is your phone has everything on it. Right. And, and it's, I know you can back up photos and all that kind of stuff, but it's a huge hassle to have to like get a new phone and start from scratch with just the backups that you made on a few apps. Right. So that's happening already. So there are ransomware attacks on mobile devices already. So to frame what I see is how these cyber attacks evolve and how the cyber attackers evolve really starts with nation state attackers. So the first uses of phones as a vector, like mobile devices as a vector to get into a network, the first instances that I heard of those were nation state actors. So I'm talking the US CIA is um, <laughs> is one of the premier nation state I attackers. Imagine, yeah. um, but then China, Russia, North Korea, um, everybody else. So they start there. And then as those bits of information filter out to the nefarious cyber attackers, then, oh, well, that's a great way to get in, right? I mean, they, they're learning, they're learning from those nation state attackers. Right. Okay. So they essentially, they're the ones that are doing it first. And then people are saying that this is possible. And I suppose once, once that thing's discovered, it's, it's like everything else, right? Once a new malware is discovered, anybody could take it and use the same attack vector or, or switch it a little bit and make it do something else. Absolutely. The vast majority of attacks actually happen from known vulnerabilities. I assume that's mostly a patching issue, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, patch management. So again, looking at that defense in depth cybersecurity stack, patch management, I mean, <laughs> ha- has to be done. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Like, I was listening to something the other day and they were talking about this hack on a company. I forget what it was. It might have been like TalkTalk or something like that um, in the UK. And they were basically saying that their patch management had to be done at a workstation level. <laughs> Which was based, and the, these guys have got like thousands and thousands of employees and desktop computers. So it's like, there's no way that you can ever protect yourself because it only takes one. Well, yes, but have a patch management system. I mean, companies of a thousand employees should have a person dedicated to patch management. That's their job and have the right. I mean, there's all kinds of automated patch management systems in a thousand employee company or a 10,000 employee company or a 10 employee company. The CEO should be getting a monthly report that says, here's the inventory of every device we have. And here's the patch management status. Like that should be an executive summary that every CEO gets. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So in closing, I have one other question, which I ask everybody and and you said you sit in dev meetings, so I'm going to ask you and see what your thoughts <laughs> all right, are. All right. Which is, what do you think separates an okay developer from a great developer? Oh, wow. That's... Um... And, and I'm mostly interested because in the position that you're in, I, you see it from a different, a different perspective. So Yeah. So, I mean, it's initiative and drive. 
I mean, that's the technical ability has to be there, but then it's really the passion and the drive to want to do it. All right. That's a great answer. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Everyone gives a slightly different one. So I'm always interested because everyone, everyone has like that different thing that separates you from being great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it really, to me, it, 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 it takes a lot, a combination of a lot of things, but having the passion for it and the drive for it is, is really this for me, the differentiator. Yeah, I would agree. I've definitely worked with people that are very good coders and not very interested in the job. Yep. And that makes them not very good coders to work with. So. Absolutely. Awesome. Before we wrap up, so last, last question. Where can people find you? Where can they find out more about CryptoStopper, Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff? Yep, yep. So our domain is getcryptostopper.com. So you can find us there. Find us on LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, we actually don't have an Instagram, <laughs> which I need to uh, I need to get with the times, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, but LinkedIn, um, CryptoStopper, and Facebook, and then our, our site, and you can reach out to us directly. Okay, perfect. I'll, I'll put all that stuff in the show notes so people can find you. Is there anything that you want to talk about or anything that you wanted to mention that I haven't asked? Yeah, so I was really interested in your background. I see... Okay, cool. Um, I mean, you're welcome to ask whatever you feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you... So where do you typically, as a as a freelancer, I assume you're a freelancer, like where do yeah, you... Yeah, yeah, what's yeah. your typical lifestyle of where you're living and, and what, what you're doing? Sure. So it's changed over the years. So me particularly as a free... I've only ever done freelance work as an android developer so i had i had a job for like uh, 18 months doing um it support didn't enjoy it <laughs> and, at the, and at the same time as that i was i was learning android as a hobby and it was early days so that's when i realized like oh people people want android developers there's not that many um so i've only ever done freelance work and i used to just do you know three or six months gig and then i would take three or six months off because i was living at home and i'm getting paid good salary so i could do that and I've kind of, I guess I've kind of always done the same thing, but in terms of location and stuff, I, I mostly used to work in London and then spend the next three to six months, you know, like traveling or like vacations here and there and stuff. Um, or like, you know, I'd spend a month in Bali or something like that, but I never really did any, you know, the, the four hour work week freelance yeah. lifestyle where you're on a beach somewhere. Like I never really did that. I, I've done, I, I, it's more recently since I finished my last like long term contract that I've started taking smaller gigs which are not your traditional contract. So I don't have to be in an office. I don't have to be online even. It's one of those, you know, here's what we want you to do. You've got a month, give it to us. And then I've got a month to do whatever I want and make sure I build this thing at the same time. That's that's tradi- yeah. That's how I work now. Very cool. Very cool. So I, I'm a big fan. You mentioned the four-hour work week. I'm a big fan yeah. of the four-hour yeah, work week. Yeah, me too, week. me too, I'm me not, too. <laughs> not living that right now. No, I was going to say, I still haven't achieved, I haven't achieved that either. But I also, uh, I think, I don't know if you listen to the Tim Ferriss podcast, but he did a podcast maybe like a year or two ago where he was like, if I was going to rewrite the four hour work week, these are the things that I would change now. And I think a big part of it was just that people miss, mistake the four hour work week for meaning you need to work four hours a week or you're not working the four hour work week. And mostly what he meant is you need to work four hours a week should be, you know, work. But if you enjoy your job and you want to work 50 hours a week or 100 hours a week, then that's also cool. Because cause otherwise it just feels like, oh, well, none of us are doing it because we've all failed. Right. Yeah. Well, and actually in my, so in my last business, um, the offsite backup and disaster recovery company, I got down to about a 10 hour work week and it, it was difficult oh, to enjoy life. I mean, it, it, right, for okay. a while, like, okay. like I had to practice not working. <laughs> 
which sounds bizarre, but I mean, I got my pilot's license, I golfed, you know, I traveled. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, cool. So, so you found, yeah, so you found things to do outside of that, but did you, did you find it hard because what you were doing, like you said, like we're both like quote unquote geeks. So did you find it hard because that's what you like to do? Cause I find it hard where, you know, I like building apps, right? So I, I do my own apps. I build apps for other people. It, it's very hard to separate. I'm building an app for a company doesn't feel any different to me than I'm building an app for myself. So if I don't have a job, I'd still sit here and code. And, and so there isn't really that level of separation, but I like it. So did you find it hard to separate because you were doing things that you like, or did you just find it hard to separate? Cause it's like, when I'm not working, what am I supposed to do? It was more when I'm not working, what am I supposed to do? Okay. Kind of yeah, thing gotcha. Where, uh, because in, and, and I really got out of the direct coding, um, pretty early on in my career. So, that it it really was that okay if i'm not working then what's my life and what do i do and, and i'm glad that i did it when i was in my early 30s at the time um and it was good it was good practice to uh ever think about retiring someday yeah <laughs> gotcha, like, gotcha. figure out what other things besides work can you be passionate about yeah I think it's hard to do, especially when you come from like a, if you do like a night, like if people are listening, they do like a nine to five, you know, it's hard to not have those days and be like, what am I supposed to do today? Because when you have a holiday, it's different. But then when you're not on vacation, it's like, well, what am I doing now? Right. Yeah. I mean, imagine, you know, being retired at 30. That sounds ridiculous. It's like a whole other life that you now have to live, right? Because you've done, you've done whatever you're doing and now it's something next, but you've got so many years left that you have to figure out something else that you enjoy. It's, I mean, it's an awesome problem to have. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's a a great problem to have. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. I, I would sit and talk to you all day, but I don't, yeah, I don't, yeah, I, I know no, I've only got an hour, so. <laughs> right. No, I appreciate you having me on and I, I definitely, definitely enjoyed it. Big thanks to today's guest, Greg Edwards. You can find Greg on LinkedIn and you can find CryptoStopper at getcryptostopper.com or on Twitter at CryptoStopper. Finally, if you like the show, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating or a review. You can do that either via Apple Podcasts or via podchaser.com. The link is in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so with a coffee donation at coffeeencodingpod.com slash donate. Caffeine is literally what fuels this podcast. If you'd like to connect with me, you can do so on Twitter at lowcarbrob. And if you'd like to connect with like-minded developers and other listeners, you can do so in our Slack community at coffeeencodingpod.com slash Slack. Thank you for listening and I'll catch you on the next episode of the Coffee Encoding Podcast.